Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. This is the second part of my conversation with Fabian DeMarco of Commercial and Construction Capital. In this part, we discuss what non-bank funding is, why it's come about, and some of the advantages of using it over more traditional funding pathways like using big four bank money. I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to start getting into the some of the mechanics of yeah. non-bank lending because I think it's a weird and wonderful world when you're not dealing with, you know, a big four or something like yeah. that. There's a whole other world of consideration to sort of put together. So first of all, why has non-bank lending come about? The non-bank lending space has sort of come about, it's grown exponentially over the last two years, but originally it came about to give borrowers, commercial borrowers primarily, a place to go when a bank says no. To fit into a bank's criteria uh, these days, you've got to tick a lot of boxes. There's times where a customer may not tick a certain box, but it doesn't mean that they're not a good client or it doesn't mean that the project isn't a good project. It just doesn't fit in the bank's metrics. There was a lot of transactions that basically didn't have a home, but they're good deals. So essentially that non-bank space was created to fill that gap. And what's happened over the last two years is that capital has really begun to flow into these non-bank lenders. And, And when I say capital, I mean money from investors wanting to invest in these funds to these property projects or or these site acquisitions. And the reason why is the returns for investors are very good in comparison to what their alternatives are. You know, if if I had a million dollars to invest as a sophisticated investor, you know, you can go buy a property, which might get you a yield of between two and three percent at the moment. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. You could put it in a term deposit, which maybe costs you money. What are your choices? So Mm. then you start looking at these alternative investments and and you've got these mortgage funds that are offering you, you know, anywhere between seven to twelve, some even higher, fifteen percent returns. Now, yes, risk reward, but then again, you're talking about a secured investment not the stock market. So you're not putting it into a managed fund that's investing it into the stock market where your money can quickly just evaporate. Mm, overnight. So you're putting it into a fund that's investing that money into a property. So at worst case, if for whatever reason something goes pear-shaped with that loan, the fund manager takes the property, sells it, retains the capital, pays the investors back. I won't say that it's risk-free because it's certainly not, but the risk is certainly diminished because of the secured asset. So- with this being the case, you've got lots of investors now thinking that's where I want to put my money. In the last two years, these funds are popping up everywhere. Obviously, fund managers are seeing an opportunity to capitalize on it. There's a growing property market where people are building and developing. There's the need for the capital. There's the urge of the investor to want to get the returns. So it's, it's a perfect storm at the moment. So that's people dropping money into, uh, into a, a mortgage fund and then lending that out. Then you've also got deals that don't necessarily meet a bank's criteria or they're too onerous or they just take too long. My experience with banks has always taken 
a huge amount of time to get yeah. through the process. Like it's it's actually a disincentive when you're thinking about starting to get finance. Like it's it's almost like getting an approval from council to actually obtaining the finance is just That's so right. painful. For, for a lot of developers, uh, it's the old saying, time is money. You know, some of these guys, you know, if they're going down the bank funding option, it may be six months before they actually draw down on the capital because the bank may have conditions of X amount of pre-sales. Mm. They may want certain things to be uh, you know, uh, attended to before, whereas a private lender might be happy to fund no pre-sales. Let's get it, let's get it funded and, and let's get the show on the road three weeks' time or four weeks' time. That's quite appealing to some developers. So the extra cost of capital sometimes is offset by the ability to get speed to market and be able to sell your product once it's out of the ground or once it's finished, which gets you a premium price, which offsets any additional cost that you may have had. So that's one of the advantages is, is time. I mean, in property, it's, it's everything. What are some of the other advantages that come with going with non-bank capital? Time is definitely one. I suppose leverage is another enticing thing. Typically on, say on a site acquisition, developer purchasing a site in, in a bank environment, they would typically cap out at 40 to 50%. So that means that the developer would have to put in up to 60 to 50% cash equity into a purchase. That's a lot, especially if you're buying a, a pretty decent sized site. In the non-bank space, you've got lenders that will go up into that 55, 60, depending on the site. Um, you know, if, if it's a good site, it's, it's got an asset on it, they may go up to 65. Having the ability to, I suppose, to put in less cash equity up front, because these guys might be buying a site and not ready for construction for another year because they have to do all their DA and planning and, and all of that. So having that extra capital now available to be able to now pay for all of that DA and planning whilst the site sits there can be quite appealing to a developer. So it assists with them helping to manage their cash flow during a planning process. That's one thing that's that's quite a, another thing that's quite appealing to the developers. So timing. So timing, leverage. Leverage, less red tape. When a bank lends to a borrower, they will typically really scrutinize the borrower and, and when I say scrutinize, I mean financials. They want to know their expenses. They want to do a full group servicing position, make sure that they, with all their income, they can service all of their debts and liabilities and, and all of that, which can be very laborious. A lot of time, a developer's income is lumpy or a builder's income could be lumpy. So their financials for the last financial year, for example, may not show enough income to be able to service all of their liabilities. However, they have more, more than have the capacity to do so. In the, in the non-bank space, whilst the lenders do look at the borrower, they also focus a lot on the asset itself. So they're asset lenders. They look at the asset, you know, does the asset make sense? Is it a good asset? Is the leverage uh, an acceptable rate? What's the exit strategy here? How probable is that exit? Okay, mm. that looks very probable. We can see how he's going to get in, how they're going to get out. As long as the borrower itself doesn't have any skeletons in the closet or any criminal actions or anything like that, most private lenders will move forward with the deal. It's a much more commercially oriented transaction, That's isn't right. it? Yeah, it's, it's about- it, They take a commercial view on the transaction, yeah. whereas even in the commercial side of a bank transaction, they still take a bit of a retail- Yeah, it's very it. personal. With uh, the use of a non-bank lender, you mentioned at the beginning, there's it's where people went when the banks said no, yep. but that shouldn't be mistaken with the person or the, the, the no. business not being good enough to lend money to. So 
When would a borrower ideally begin the conversation with a non-bank lender? Do you exhaust your possibilities with a bank and waste the time by the time you get a, an answer, which could be no? Or can you just go straight to a non-bank and, and begin the conversation? It all depends on what's your driver. So if as a developer, your main driver is price, if I dangle a sharper rate in front of you versus this rate, is that going to be the deciding factor? If the answer is yes, if the main driver for you is rate and that's the most important thing, you go to the bank first. That's where you're going to get the sharpest rate. The biggest mistake any developer can do would be to try and compare non-bank private funding solution to a bank. They're totally different. So if price is your key driver, then yes, go to the bank, start the process, see how far you can get, see what their conditions are. If at the end of that, then you feel, okay, there's too laborious, these conditions, then explore the non-bank option. However, if you know upfront, there's no point going to the bank because you're wasting your time. They're going to want to see some level of pre-sales. There, you could say, they're still, obviously, everyone is conscious of price. They don't want to get the, eye, the wool pulled over their eyes with price, but price is not the main driver there. Flexibility, conditions, terms, that's, that's more important to this guy. So obviously then once he's made that decision or she's made that decision to go into the private space, then it becomes a matter of let's look at what's on offer. How can we procure the best terms in this space for you? But making the decision whether to go bank or private is quite simple. If price is your biggest driver, go to the bank first. If terms is your biggest driver, most likely private would be your, your better option. Well, I'd like to also understand the the levels of, of debt and equity yeah. that are involved in a particular kind of deal. So you hear terms like senior debt, subordinated, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Where does that fit into how non-bank lending operates yeah. and, and maybe a comparison between that and big four? There is a word that is used, a bit of jargon. It's called capital stack. The capital stack is basically, if you imagine total development costs for a project. So when I say total development, I'm talking about from the purchase of the site right down to the interest charged on, on the debt, uh, finance costs, council fees, you name it, everything. If you were going to do a profit and loss statement, this would be all of your expenses. So when you look at that, that's all going to get paid for. Now, how that's paid for is usually made up by the capital stack. Typically in what they call senior debt, that refers to the first mortgage holder, the main funder. So when people lend against the security property, uh, you always have what they call a, a first mortgage holder. And sometimes you might have what they call a second mortgage or mezzanine debt, which comes after that, or junior debt, it's also referred to as. So they would come second. All that means is if this property has got to get sold to recoup money, the person ranked first gets their money first. Person ranked second, we get a second. So obviously the, the senior debt or first mortgage holder usually provides the bulk of the capital. So in construction finance, that's typically up to 75% with a bank of those costs. And in the non-bank space, you can usually go up to 80. It's typically 80% of that. So that means let's focus on the non-bank space for now. So if a lender is going to lend you 80% of those costs, that means that the developer has to put in 20%. So they have to cover 20% of those costs. Now, typically, that will be all the stuff that happens in the early stages. And planning and... Planning, yeah. marketing, uh, that, those sort of things, council fees, the equity they've put into the site when they buy it. So when it comes time to doing the construction and drawing down on the construction loan, 
if there is any equity that's still got to go in, it'll go in from the developer then, and it'll usually go in to the land. If anything has to be contributed, he'll put it into the land. Once that's all done, then they'll start drawing down on, on the construction loan. Now, where that varies is sometimes a developer might not have 20% cash equity. So they've put in as much equity as they have upfront into the land, and maybe they've paid for a little bit of planning, but they've, they've got no more money. There's still a gap. Let's say they've only been able to put in 10%. So now there's a 10% gap between that 80, they've put in 10, and now there's 10% gap that needs to be filled. That 10% gap is usually filled by what they call a mezzanine loan or a junior debt. There is lenders out there that will go as a second mortgage. Essentially, the developer puts in their equity, then the mezzanine lender will put in their 10%. So it'll act as a loan to the developer. And then once that's put in, then the first mortgage holder, the, the senior debt, will, will put in theirs. But they won't necessarily, the, the senior lender won't necessarily put in their money up until... They won't put it in until the first two have. The first two have, okay. That's right. So, yeah. But it's the opposite way around the opposite way. So, when, you, when you're taking it that's out. That's right. Is that right? So, yeah. Money goes in first by the developer, second by the mezzanine lender, and third by the junior debt, and it flows out the opposite way. The opposite way, yeah. The main lender gets their money back first, the junior lender gets their money back second, and the developer gets the their money back. The poor developer. Poor developer, but <laughs> yeah. returns, uh, hopefully, the returns flow the opposite way. That's well. right, yeah. The yeah. developer gets the highest return, the mm. junior debt in terms of relative in terms of percentage usually gets the, the higher second highest return and the senior debt holder. It's quite a highly leveraged though, isn't it? By 80%, it's not a it's That's, not a bad uh... look it's it's not a typical structure. Mm. The standard structure is 80-20. Yep. Developer puts in 20, senior debt holder puts in 80, or, or with the bank 75-25. It is becoming a little bit more common now to see mezzanine debt. Where you probably see more mezzanine debt is on the bigger projects. When you're talking about $50, $60 million projects mm. where there's a quite a large equity chunk that's got to go in and the debt is being funded. Usually the senior debt is being funded by a bank. You know that they've got sharp rates on the senior debt, which is the bulk of the debt. So they can afford to have higher rates on a portion of mezzanine debt. Where it gets very tricky, you need to have a very, very profitable project if you're going to do senior debt in private funding and then try and stack mezzanine debt yes. behind it in private as well. The only ones where that usually works is where you've got a project that's got a real big profit margin so they can afford to chew up the extra costs. Mm. What starts off when a, when a developer first sits down, you know, they're driving in the car, they see this site and already their light bulb goes on in their head and they go home, they grab a piece of paper or they open up a spreadsheet and just start punching in some numbers. From that point to the end of, you know, if they get mezzanine debt in a facility, what that feasibility looks like and what the one at the end looks like could be totally different. Mm. You know, this one could hear, he could, his eyes could light up because they think that they're, they're going to make X amount of profit. And then by the end of it, they could be making minuscule amount compared to that. And if you ask them in the beginning, would you have done all of that to make that amount? They probably would tell you no. So yeah. that's why it's very important whilst debt is great and that's how I make my living, I always tell developers, take your time. If, if you're going to look at mezzanine debt, just make sure that the numbers stack up, that you're still happy with your profit at the end of it. 
the reality is sometimes they don't have a choice. Mm. They might find themselves in a position where you know they're, they're in the project already. They've got to get it built and it's just the reality they have to do it. So with using non-bank capital, I'm assuming that there'd be a level of knowledge and being a little bit street smart because it's, it's quite a varied pool of people that offer capital, but they're all different in terms of their requirements, who they'll lend to, what their terms are. Yep. What are we talking about when we step into the non-bank lending world in terms of safety nets or anything like that for the people that are borrowing? What kind of an environment are we in? It is a bit of a jungle. Uh, and let me clarify, when I say it's unregulated, these lenders, the ones that hold AFSLs, they do have to, obviously they are regulated by ASIC, but the regulation is is more to oversee their responsibilities to the investors. So people that are investing money with them, they, they need to act in a certain way. They need to follow compliance. They have to do certain things. So they are regulated from that perspective. However, the loans that they conduct and lend out to people are not regulated. So they're not audited, they're not, they're not overseen by anyone to make sure that they've conducted themselves in a proper way or a proper manner throughout that transaction. It's just regulation on, on the investor side of things. This is why you could have a fund that operates meticulously with their investors and has utmost compliance, but on the other side of it, potentially they could be ruthless with mm. the borrowers, not necessarily doing anything illegal, but absolutely ruthless. If you don't know sort of what to look for, can can be quite a shock for for some borrowers. In terms of what to look for, yeah, what are some of those? Yeah, I could say, for example, things to look out for is you know lenders that charge a hefty upfront fee before they've before they've issued any formal approval or anything like that. So that could be a bit of a red flag. That being said, I do have lenders that I know charge a fair, uh, like a decent upfront fee, but they're legitimate lenders. So I'm always very careful in when to say, okay, guys, this is a red flag, watch out for it. Because I, on, the, on the flip side, I know lenders that, that do that, that are legitimate. The only real way that you know is experience in working with a lender and having that experience from working from the start of the transaction through to the exit. I don't mean settlement, I mean to you actually out of the loan. So once you have that full experience from start to end, then you can make a fair assessment to say, okay, this lender is is someone that I want to deal with again. But up until that point, you're just kind of like a detective looking for clues, you know. <laughs> Look, I, I've found that getting out, meeting them, talking to them. I mean, I spend my day in two facets. One is dealing with brokers and clients and the other is dealing with the lenders. So I spend just as much time talking to lenders, meeting with them, understanding how they operate as much as I spend on the other side of it. But only over time, you, you sort of get a feel for it. This is the end of the second part of the episode. Coming up will be the third and final part, where we continue the conversation on the ins and outs of using non-bank finance. We focus on the inherent risks involved and why it's therefore important to consider using a broker. And we wrap up by returning to some of Fabian's lessons learned as a result of his exposure and specialization in this niche field. See you soon.